our first song tonight is going to be number 322, Nothing Between. Nothing Between.
as we sing our theme song. already this weekend, say amen with me. Amen. Hasn't it been a blessing to hear all the different breakout sessions and all the different presentations by Dr. Kim? Yes, I have been greatly blessed and I hope you, that you guys have too. Um, so this is our last meeting tonight, but it's not the last thing happening tonight. So tonight the F5 team is putting on a game night over in the gym. So we invite you all to come and join us it's right across the road, right behind us. So come on over, we're going to play some group games and have a fun evening together, and we hope you're all there. Also, um, you're going to hear more information about this coming up, but we also have some F5 events going on tomorrow, and you will hear more about that, so make sure you stay till the end. Um, I wanted to remind you guys as well that all of the sermons from the weekend are going to be archived on our website, so I invite you to head over and you can listen to them there. If you missed out on any of them or... If you missed out on any of the beginnings, there's definitely a time you can go find them there. So head on over to that. And just on behalf of our team, I wanted to thank each and every one of you for taking the time to come worship together with us. It's been a blessing, and we just are blessed that you are here, and we look forward to seeing you next year.
On a hill far away Stood an old rugged cross The emblem of suffering and shame And how I love that old cross Where the dearest and best do is I love to promote other people's ministries and a friend of mine started this ministry called SDA B&B so you can kind of guess what it's all about who stayed in an Airbnb before this is an Airbnb for Seventh-day Adventists have you guys been on the GYC site for like okay who's familiar with Adventist uh, hospitality it's a place on Facebook where you can go where you're looking for rides you're looking for a place to stay he created this beautiful website it looks just like an Airbnb website but it's where you can find places to stay hosted by other Seventh-day Adventists. And if you have the gift of hospitality and you like to share with other people your place or maybe share a Sabbath meal, or maybe you have activities going on in your church that you want to advertise, this is the place to be. So I want to encourage you, go check out the website. Things like Airbnb 
only take off if people start visiting the site and start sharing this with other people. So when you're traveling, let's say you're going to GYC and you're short on funds and you need a place to stay, you can check on there and see what's available. All right? So anyways, I'm going to take this shirt off now. Now before I begin, I just want to ask the leadership team of Rise Up if they could just stand really quick. If the leaders of Rise Up can stand up. I just want to personally thank this team of leaders. Having been involved in this kind of leadership, these are the true unsung heroes. These are the ones that are working six months, five months, four months, three months, working up. They spend countless hours. You have no idea. These conferences don't just come together. There's a huge amount of planning and sacrifice. They don't get paid a dime for doing it. In fact, when you're in ministry behind the scenes, it costs you money. You have to fly to these events where you're going to have meetings, late night phone calls, Zooms, things. And so I just want to thank you and may God bless each and every one of you. Your reward is in heaven. So thank you. And they know that they are having the most fun. When you're behind the scenes, that's where the greatest blessings are. So may God bless each and every one of you guys. Now, does anyone know what the theme of the book of Ecclesiastes is? It's one of my favorite books. It's one of the more difficult and unusual books to understand. What did you say? Meaningless. Apart from God, all is vanity. Or God of purpose. It's about purpose. In Ecclesiastes, King Solomon gives us many puzzling statements. For example, in Ecclesiastes 7, 2, he says he'd rather be in a house of mourning, a funeral, than in a house of feasting, than a party. Does anyone here even like going to a funeral? Why would he rather be at a funeral than at a party? In Ecclesiastes 7.3, he says, sorrow is better than laughter. We like to laugh, don't we? Do you like to be sad? These are called paradoxical statements. At first, they sound absurd and self-contradictory until you look into them deeper and then you will find truth that they're well-founded. Because see, when you're at a party, you're in the moment. You're not thinking about the past or the future. But when you're at a funeral, you know what you do? You stop to think about your life. When I was at Crystal Reber's funeral, and as they're sharing stories about her, her eulogy, I'm asking myself, how am I living my life? How do I want to be remembered? Have I contributed anything worthwhile? What kind of a legacy am I gonna leave behind? When you're laughing, you're enjoying the moment. But when you're sad, sometimes you will stop to evaluate your life. It may bring changes to your life. You may ponder questions that you normally may not think about. And difficult times often force or compel us to make needed changes. There is nothing like a sorrowful situation that brings me to my knees to help me to sense my inadequacy and weakness and my need for God in my life. In this book, Solomon is a man who is looking for answers. He is searching the deepest depths of the human experience to find answers. If anyone by reason of wisdom could find or could understand how to find meaning in life, it would be King Solomon. In this book, he asks the kinds of questions that you and I have asked. What is the point of life? Can we have a meaningful life without any direction? Can we cope with life without purpose? King Solomon's life is very relatable to me, not because of wisdom or wealth, because I have neither of those things, but because of two things. His insatiable pursuit to find happiness and his unquenchable intoxication with pleasure and self-gratification. 
and number two, as a result, the conclusion that he arrives at. I was blessed with good parents, but having good parents is no guarantee that you will stay in the fold. God was a perfect father. Satan convinced one half of the angels to follow him, and eventually, one third followed him. In a perfect world, in a perfect garden, Adam and Eve, his first two children, departed. God was the perfect father in a perfect world. Satan, after all, is the father of lies. A pastor friend of mine had a sermon called The Ten Commandments for How to Raise Your Kids. Isn't that a great sermon title? Eventually, he changed it to 10 Suggestions I Have for How to Raise Your Kids. And eventually, the sermon title got changed to 10 Questions I Have about How to Raise Kids. My mother was pregnant with twins in 1973 as they were immigrating here to the United States. So technically, I was made in Korea and born in the good old USA. They wanted to give us the American dream because there is no country like this country in the world. I love this country. As one person put it, have you ever heard of the French dream? How about the China dream? Of course you haven't because it doesn't exist. It's called the American dream for a reason. In what other country can you be the architect of your own destiny, says this person. This is the land of opportunity. This is a land flowing with milk and money. My dad, whose English was very limited, put down Fred and Cred as our names. There's a 50% chance I would have been Cred Kim. I'm thankful for the nurse who spoke up. She recommended that those weren't good names. My father happened to be reading the great controversy at the time, and so he named us after Martin Luther and John Calvin. So my twin brother's name is Martin, and my name is Calvin. My brother became a pastor. They spent three years in, in China working with lepers. He's currently an evangelist with Amazing Facts. So he went that way. As a child of immigrant parents, I was just like many of you, many young people. I had one goal in life. I wanted to get older and I wanted to do what? Make money. Now we know that they tell us that money doesn't make you happy, right? And consciously, we kind of are aware of that, but we kind of all want to find out for ourselves, don't we? I was blessed to have Adventist education all my life, including Weimar Academy for my freshman year. I studied hard in high school, and it's not that I didn't, I didn't, it's not that I made a lot of trouble, but if trouble was happening, I wanted to be there. And I did gravitate towards hanging out with the troublemakers in high school. I went to PUC for college, did the usual thing, did some things that um, I'm embarrassed about, peer pressure, hanging out with the wrong friends. And spiritually, I would best describe myself as a spiritual schizophrenic. I go through seasons where I was spiritually strong and committed, followed by spiritual apathy like a yo-yo up and down. There's a Framingham Heart Study that shares that if three of your closest friends are obese, there's a very high likelihood that you may be obese. But if three of your closest friends are fit and active, there's a high likelihood that you will be fit and active. And it underscores a basic biblical principle that who and what you choose to focus on does have a direct impact on your life. By beholding, we become changed. For the young people, choose your friends carefully. And I can't think of a better place than to be at a place like this, at a conference like this, with other young people who are like-minded, spiritually grounded, and doing mission work. I studied hard at PUC, I was focused, a lot of young people, when they go to college, they make this mistake. They have freedom for the first time in their life and they're having too much fun and their grades drop. 
Then they spend their second, third, fourth year working hard to get their grades back up. I knew not to make that mistake, so while I was having fun, I made sure I kept my grades up. I studied hard. After three years, I got accepted to dental school, so I decided to skip my fourth year and go straight to dental school. I took a year off, went to Korea, and at that time, I was strong spiritually, or spiritually committed at that time, and I decided I'm going to go to dental school, work hard, get out, and it's time to make money. Now, towards the end of my second year, my friends invited me to go dancing at the Derby. It's a famous club in LA. Swing dancing, some of the older folks may know, well, most everyone knows what swing dancing is. It's kind of an iconic 1930s, 1940s dance. And Gap, I don't know if Gap is still around. Are they still making clothes? I think they've really gone downhill. They had a commercial called Gap Swing. And in this commercial, this is a scene from the commercial. They're wearing Gap clothes, khaki, pants, and they were swing dancing. And this became a fad sweeping across the United States in about 1997. And so everybody was going swing dancing. It was one of these things where you kind of dress up like the 1930s and 1940s, and it was kind of a, in the, in the clubbing world, it's kind of a kosher conservative dance. So my friends invited me to go, and I went. And unless you know what you're doing, it's really not very much fun. So I stood there like a wallflower, watched the entire time. And when you don't know how to do something everyone else is doing, you think, this is dumb. I'm not going to ever do this again. I said, I'm never coming back here. And I don't know what happened. Two or three weeks later, some time had passed, I was there at the club again with my friends. And I decided, I'm going to learn how to do this. So I signed up for a lesson. I took one lesson, and it totally clicked. It made sense. It's all, there's a pattern to it, and it totally makes sense. And from that time on, we started going to the club while I'm in dental school. And we would drive out there anywhere from three to six nights a week during dental school. We're just having the time of our life. Now, the Derby was famous. Hollywood stars would come through there. I remember dancing right next to Tori Spelling. Some of you may know who she is if you're my age from 90210. However, I always kept the Sabbath. One time my friend called me to let me know that Nev Campbell would be at the Derby. I had always wanted to dance with her, famous Hollywood actress. But I declined to go as it was Friday evening and it was a Sabbath. While I initially honored the Sabbath, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Slowly, any spiritual commitments that I had had soon eroded away. We are told about King Solomon. So gradual was Solomon's apostasy that before he was aware of it, he had wandered far from God. Almost imperceptibly, he began to trust less and less in divine guidance. You know, when they say that someone fell into adultery, you don't fall into adultery. Something went awry a long time before someone commits adultery. I know from experience that the only safeguard from sin is to keep your eyes on Jesus and maintain your connection with him. Sabbath was gone. I was living for pleasure, mirth, and amusement. It was euphoric, and I was willing now to trade in my eternal destiny for this grand carnival on earth. Many of my friends with who I caroused and cohorted with were former Adventists, and they always had a gripe or resented Adventism. I never did because I was taught and I understood Bible prophecy and our church doctrines from an early age. The way we interpret Bible prophecy and the way it fits with our doctrines, church teaching is coherent, cohesive, and complete. Everything fits together. I never doubted for a moment that God, the Bible, and what we Seventh-day Adventists believe was absolutely true. I share this to encourage the parents to make sure you teach your children our doctrines and Bible prophecy. There are many in the church today who look at church doctrines and Bible prophecy in a negative way. The Greek word for truth is aletheia. 
The literal meaning of this word is the state of not being hidden. What is the thing that is most hidden in this world? The thing that's most hidden is truth about who God is. Satan's done a brilliant job of distorting that truth. Doctrines just means church teachings. Every one of our church teachings, when taught correctly, reveals truth about who God is, his character, and his beautiful plan to save us. Our church doctrines, when taught and understood correctly, are beautiful. Let's take the judgment, for example. God's judgment system is a three-phase system. God's system of judgment could not be more fair, just, and equitable. You see God willing to be fully transparent for all to see and shows us what an amazing God we serve. When I look at most of my friends who have left our church, the vast majority knew little to nothing about Bible prophecy or our church teachings. I truly believe that if they had been taught Bible truth, we would have far less casualties. And for those that leave, there is a greater likelihood that they would return when they discover for themselves that all that glitters is not gold. Today, trying to dismiss the church doctrine seems to be in vogue. The buzzword is, it's all about Jesus. It sounds beautiful, doesn't it? But this is an oxymoron, as it was Jesus who gave us our church doctrines. And our church doctrines are about Jesus. I'm going to share a story that a pastor friend of mine shared, and I think it makes a great point. You guys have heard about promise keepers. And it was, and I love the premise of promise keepers. It's about let's be men of integrity, let's be fathers and husbands, and it sounds really good. And at one of these promise keeper meetings that he was there at, this pastor has now passed away. They were in there, and they've got speakers like Max Lucado there, famous speakers. And imagine an, just a coliseum or kind of like a football stadium just filled with men. Can you just feel the testosterone and the energy with the music playing? Christians on fire for Jesus. And he said, on the count of three, everyone yell what denomination you are. Could you imagine what it sounded like? Presbyterian, Baptist, Methodist, Foursquare Gospel, just blah, 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 blah. Sounds like mumbo jumbo. And then he says, on the count of three, yell who you are saved by. One, two, three. Jesus, Jesus. Je Can you imagine the energy in that place with just grown men ch chanting that together? It sounds beautiful, doesn't it? But let me tell you what it does. They do this to highlight that we are all saved by Jesus, and Jesus is what matters. And Jesus is what matters. Their subtle, em their subtle emphasis is that doctrines are divisive. Let's unite everyone on the one thing that brings us all together. And while it sounds good, sounds good, this completely undermines the pillars of God's truth. This would do away with the Sabbath, because that would be divisive. The sanctuary message, the three angels' message, and paves the way for the ecumenical movement. One of their seven core values for the promise keepers reads, a promise keeper is committed to reach beyond any racial and denominational barriers to demonstrate the power of biblical unity. That cuts you and I out of there because we worship on a different day. We interpret things differently. This may sound quaint on the surface, but what do you think is a denominational barrier? It's church doctrines. What we believe in church in our church is what will be used against us. I share this because as we come closer to the end, it will be our distinct doctrines that will bring to us persecution. Back to my story. I was not foolish enough to think that I could live however I want and think that I was just gonna go and float on to heaven. Many Christians think that they could have one foot in the church and one foot in the world. I knew that my lifestyle was not compatible with heaven. My mantra was, if I'm going to hell, I'm not going to hell on a moped. I'm going to go to hell on a Ferrari because so many people are going to hell on a moped. So many people are going to hell in a handbasket. 
they're not enjoying what the church has to offer, and they're partially trying to enjoy what the world has to offer. And they thought, if I'm going to go to hell, I'm going to enjoy everything that the world has to offer. I had bought into one of Satan's original lie, that what God has to offer is subpar or inferior to what Satan has to offer. That Satan offers freedom and conversely following God comes with a long list of restrictions, prohibitions, and burdens. Perhaps unknowingly, many of, maybe perhaps many of you may fall prey to this lie. Now here's a simple litmus test. If it was up to you and Jesus could come back today, one year, five years, 10 years, what would be your answer? Okay, today, I like that. Is that the same for everybody here? The only reason, if you said anything else, the only right reason would be because there are people who are not ready and you want to prepare them. But otherwise, we should all want Jesus to come back right now. But if you said one year or five years, when I speak to high school students and I ask this question, invariably, they will almost always say, down the road, five years, 10 years. Why? They'll often say they want to get married first. That's a high schooler's way of saying they want to experience cuddling first. You get what I'm saying? Euphemism, they want to be able to cuddle. They want to experience what life has to offer. They want to graduate. My office manager said she was honest. She goes, I'm selfish. I really want my dream home first. As in any home on this planet could compare to the mansion that Jesus has planned. I mean, she, she, she has not owned her own home. When you own your own home, it comes with a whole host of other problems. You've got to maintain that home, take care of the landscape, property taxes. It's not what it's all cut out to be. These answers perhaps reveal how we really feel and view God. We have embraced a lie that heaven may be lacking and may put us at a disadvantage compared to the grand things that life on this earth has to offer. Our frame of reference is this world, and we can often be short-sighted. We cannot comprehend the grand spiritual realities that God has in store for us. God tells us, I has not seen, nor I ear has heard, the things that God has in store for them that love him. I was no exception, and I had fallen hook, line, and sinker from one of Satan's oldest lies. My, by my senior year, after two years of swing dancing all the time, it kind of got old, because no matter what you do, everything on this earth gets old. I went on a mission trip to Fiji. It was a back-to-back -back mission trip, and then I was going on another mission trip to El Salvador. And there was an ER doctor in our group, non-Avenus, and he taught us how to salsa dance on that mission trip. So now my world opened up to the world of salsa dancing. Swing dancing was kosher. And that's how Satan works, right? He takes something that looks harmless, and now salsa dancing was what my friends and I were doing. And now, as I mentioned, Sabbath was out the door. Friday night is one of the best nights to go out and to have fun and go party with your friends. I was averaging three to six nights when I was regularly dancing. The most I ever went to a club was 21 nights in a row. That was our happy place. I was on the highway to hell. The rock group ACDC has a famous song called Highway to Hell. In my younger years, I used to listen to a rock band called Led Zeppelin. They have a famous song called Stairway to Heaven. When you juxtapose these two song titles, Highway to Heaven and Stairway to Heaven. Highway to Hell and Stairway to Heaven. It gives us a metaphor of the anticipated traffic. Not surprisingly, it parallels exactly what the Bible teaches. Wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be where to go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. 
I'm not keeping up with the slides, I'm sorry. Um, every mother's nightmare. This is in, while well, I was in dental school. Victor Frankl, Austrian psychologist on Holocaust survival, author of Man's Search for Meaning writes, when a person can't find a deep sense of meaning, they distract themselves with pleasure. I was no exception, I was choking on pleasure. But for others, it could be work, it may be entertainment, shopping for some, you don't have to be out in clubs every night, drugs and alcohol for others. I had a dream. In my dream, I was out driving at night with my friends. If I'm driving in a car at night with my friends, invariably we're headed to a club and the sky turns bright as day. What would you think if you had a dream like this and it was night and the sky turned as bright as day? What is the first thought that would come into your mind? Jesus is coming. And I woke up and my heart was pounding because I knew I was not ready. Now, it's the kind of dream where you wake up in sheer panic and sheer terror because I was completely living a purposeless life. In Luke 13, Jesus gives us a parable. For the sake of time, I'm going to just run through this parable because you guys are very familiar with this parable. A certain man, this is God, had a fig tree. Does anyone know what a fig tree represents in the Bible? The fig tree represents two things, the children of Israel, or it represents man. It represents you and I. When you study scripture, the message and meaning of scripture needs to meet you and I where you and I are in our life. So when we read about the young rich ruler, it's not about the young rich ruler who was there 2,000 years ago. You and I are the young rich ruler. The fig tree, I mentioned earlier about the law of first mention. Where do we first see figs mentioned in the Bible? In Genesis, right? After they sinned, they were naked. Nakedness represents sin. They covered themselves with fig leaves. So what it represents is they were trying to cover themselves with clothing or linen. Revelation tells us that linen is the righteousness of the saints. But they try to clothe themselves instead of with Christ's righteousness, their own. What do you call that? Righteousness by work or self-righteousness? God plants a fig tree in the middle of his vineyard. The vineyard represents the world in the Bible. There are stories where the father sent the sons to work in the vineyard. Here, God plants, do you see something odd and peculiar about this? Why would you plant a fig tree in the middle of the vineyard? Fig, fig trees don't grow in vineyards. God planned for this tree to be a peculiar tree, not a weird tree. If you go and dig into the word peculiar, segula, and the, the root of this word, a special group of people. We were his special children to be a blessing to the world. And he comes and he's seeking fruit because that's what a fig tree does is produce fruit. Then he said unto the dresser of his vineyard, which is Jesus, behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down, why cumbereth the ground? Because it's wasting space. If you're not fulfilling your purpose, you're just taking up space. And Jesus says, Lord, let it alone this year also till I shall dig about it and dung it. Look at the imagery. Jesus wants to tenderly care for this plant so that we can bear fruit. And it fit bear fruit well, and if not, then after that, thou shalt cut it down. This is a simple parable that all of you guys are familiar with. But there's some interesting details in here. It mentions specific time periods. There was three years, and then Jesus says, give it one more year. That's a total of how many years? 
four years. Is it just random information or detail in the Bible? I want you to understand that nothing in the Bible is put in there without reason. Every detail is in there specifically with a purpose. You guys are all well-versed, I'm sure, in basic Bible prophecy. What does one year represent in Bible prophecy? One day equals one year, right? And in the Hebrew calendar, each month has 30 days and 360 days. So if you have four years, four times 360 comes out to 1440 years. 1,000, I'm sorry, 1440 days. And with Bible prophecy, 1440 days equals 1440 years. Scholars believe that the year that the Israelites went into the promised land was the year 1407. If you take 1407 and you add 1440, don't forget the zero year, what year do you end on? AD 34. What happened in AD 34? That's when Stephen was stoned. And what happened prophetically? Probation closed for the children of Israel. So when Jesus told the story, he was actually giving a Bible prophecy. Now, we must apply this parable to our own lives because after all, we are spiritual Israel. Jesus is willing to do whatever it takes to help us to bear fruit. But be sure of this, a time will come when probation will close. The value of time, we're told in Christ's object lesson, is beyond computation. Christ regarded every moment as precious, and it is thus that we should regard it. Life is too short to be trifled away. We have but a few days of probation in which to prepare for eternity. Jesus is so merciful, gracious, and long-suffering. I look back and recognize that God mercifully spared my life despite all the dangerous and poor choices that I was making. Fast forward to February, before I graduated from dental school, my brother was getting married. I was slated to do a two-week rotation in a dental clinic in Korea. I go to Korea, I had been there years before. Most of my friends were not around anymore, they had gotten married. And so I asked one of the dental assistants, do they salsa dance here in Korea? And she looked up some salsa clubs for me, and I didn't know it, but salsa was just starting to become the latest fad in Korea. And I had come at just that time. Now, in the US, I was a pretty decent dancer. I learned from watching and taking lessons from some of the most amazing dancers in LA from Cuba and Puerto Rico, but I was a little fish in a big pond. In Korea, I was now the big fish in a little pond. These friends took me to the different clubs. On Saturday night, I went to a popular club in Gangnam. For some of you, that word may ring a bell because there's a popular song, Gangnam style. As soon as I walked in and I started dancing at that club, everyone cleared out as they were watching. And in my own little microcosm, I had felt like I had arrived. The club owners treated me like I was their best friend because they wanted me in their club. Drinks were free. I didn't have to pay cover. And um, they just welcomed me with big open arms. They had connected me, and so I had taught some celebrity how to dance salsa on TV. It was aired on TV. I taught another techno star that was aired for some TV show. And I'm just, I'm 26, and I'm just living a riotous life like the prodigal son. I've got friends who want to hang out with me. One of the things that got aired, back in, back in those days we had VHS tapes, and people in America, Korean people would rent these VHS, VHS tapes to watch stuff that's going on in Korea. 
And so the people at the church, the local church in Sacramento, happened to see this of me dancing and teaching some celebrity how to dance salsa. And I have a twin brother, and he's the youth pastor. So of course, they want to know why the youth pastor is in Korea dancing salsa on TV. <laughs> now, they found me sort of intriguing and fascinating, a dentist by day, salsa dancer by night who spoke funny Korean. Koreans love to work hard and party or play hard or drink hard. And this crazy guy from the US was the epitome of this work hard, play hard mantra. I was fully engaged in a life of sin. In Ecclesiastes 2.10, King Solomon says, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. Likewise, whatever pleasure and vice came my way, I welcomed it all. And now smoking a pack of cigarettes a day was, was normal. When I graduated from dental school four months later, I went straight back to Korea to party for one month and revel in a life of sin. There are six facts about sin that I want to share with you. Things that I want the young people in particular to be aware of. Here are the first four. Why do people sin? The Bible tells us why people sin. Because in Ecclesiastes 8.11, because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily. Therefore, the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. If you smoked one cigarette and you got cancer the next day, nobody, nobody would be smoking cigarettes. But when do you get cancer? It's 30 years later. When do you get emphysema? 40 years later. The Bible tells us because the results of sin don't come until much later. We are foolish to think that we can trifle with sin and we don't recognize how dangerous the consequences are. Number two, sin is fun. If it wasn't fun, everybody wouldn't be doing it. But what people don't realize is that sin is only fun for a short while. The Bible tells us about Moses choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Moses is a wise young man because the pleasures of sin only last for a season. A, se a season isn't very long. I guarantee, I guarantee you the fun will come to an end. But be very aware. Sin fact number three. Sin has built-in consequences. You play, you pay. The Bible tells us whatsoever man sows, that shall he also reap. Don't think for a minute that you can enjoy the pleasures of sin and walk away unscathed. The wages of sin is death. The soul that sinneth, he shall die. Number four, sin cannot be satisfied. A sinner is like a heroin addict. An addict is never satisfied. Andrew Carnegie, steel magnet, one of the wealthiest men of his time, when asked how much more money he would like, he said, just a little bit more. Solomon's wives, if there's anything we can learn from King Solomon and his 700 wives and 300 concubines, is that if one woman cannot satisfy you, 1,000 women cannot satisfy you either. I refused my heart no pleasure, indulged and engaged in all kinds of sin that came my way. I thought I had discovered freedom, and at first it felt like freedom, probably like Eve when she took and partook of that apple or the fruit, the forbidden fruit. She felt like maybe she had encountered and come into a different state. But what was initially exciting, fun, and euphoric for the first time started to become very unsatisfying and empty. I was struggling to find contentment, peace, and satisfaction in my life. The pen of inspiration tells us, when God lets man have his own way, it is the darkest hour of his life. You don't want to experience this. I want to share with you some interesting insight that Sister White gives us about the man from the pool of Bethesda who was crippled for 38 years. We are told the secret reason for how he became sick and paralyzed and now a burden to his friends. 
He had been fascinated by the pleasures of sin and had thought to make life a grand carnival. That's exactly what I wanted to do, is make life a grand carnival. He never imagined that he would become a terror to others and a terror to his family. He thought he could just have innocent fun, but once he started on this path of sin, he quickly slid into deeper sin and Satan took absolute control of him. By the time he wanted to stop, it was too late. He would have given up everything to go back, but he was now helpless and Satan had taken full control of him. Satan now treated this helpless man with cruelty and anger. Remorse came too late. When he would have sacrificed wealth and pleasure to regain his lost manhood, he had become helpless on the enemy's ground. And Satan had taken possession of all his faculties. The tempter had lured him with many charming presentations, but when once the wretched man was in his power, the fiend became relentless in his cruelty and terrible in his angry visitations. So it will be with all who yield to evil. The sad, fascinating pleasure of their early career ends in the darkness of despair or the madness of a ruined soul. After the one month of riotous living in Korea, flew, I flew back home, headed to Seattle to start my dental career. And now I'm in Seattle and I made friends the way I usually make friends, which is going to nightclubs, making friends, hanging out with all kinds of riffraff. And now I'm beginning to hang out with really the wrong kinds of people and experimenting with drugs. Sin fact number five, sin makes you stupid. Can you think of the ultimate example of this? Satan. He had it all. He lost it all. King Solomon, who began his life so virtuously, scholars believe that King Solomon experimented with drugs. To use modern-day vernacular, his was a life of sex, drugs, and alcohol. And his drug of choice was women. At the height of his debauchery, his moral sensibilities had become so numb and calloused. We are told in Prophets and Kings that he fell so low as to consent to the erection of an idol to whom living children were offered as sacrifices. This young man who had such a life of promise, can you consent to anything lower than child sacrifices? As soon as my practice was up and running, I headed back to Korea to party. I was on a bus in Korea, and I remember thinking that my life was not normal. My life was dysfunctional. My parents go walking together in the evenings. They read books, and I was a bookworm when I was a kid. They garden. I couldn't do any of those things. I was going 120 miles an hour, and I realized why these rock stars are all strung up on drugs, because it's such a high when you're on stage, and when you come down, it's such a downer, and so they start taking all these drugs. I could not sleep. I had insomnia, I had to take meds. Unless you have experienced it, you will not understand what it's like to feel completely empty, a total void in your life, living in darkness, and you sense that something very important is missing in your life, and yet nothing can fill it. There's a song made famous by Frank Sinatra called My Way. On the internet, it says, My Way represents a quintessentially American outlook that nothing in life matters more than living on your own terms. Americans love this song. The chorus goes, I did it my way. Many of you have heard this song before. One writer noted, this song is about me, me, me. This song is considered American's anthem of self-determination. I am fully convinced and confident that this song will be the anthem for those who will be traveling on the broad road with the wide gate that leads to destruction. It was February of 2021. My best friend was a district attorney from Riverside, California. He was 34 at the time and I was 27. I invited him to come up. I wanted him to come to a rave and have him try ecstasy with me. I first met Dave when I was in dental school 
because for a brief moment, we were both having kind of a, a spiritual awakening. Net 98 was going on. Dwight Nelson was preaching. And we started attending, and I met him there. And for a short while, we started a little men's group, and we started studying the Bible, but both of us kind of fell back into the world. The distractions were strong, and the distractions were everywhere. Now, just think about this. He's a prosecuting attorney who prosecutes people who break the law. And he accepts my open invitation to come up to Seattle to try an illegal drug with me. When your life is empty and lacking, you're willing to try anything. My favorite thing to do when I'm at a dance club or at a rave is to dance. So I took him, I got him high on ecstasy. I'm out dancing. At about 4.30 in the morning, I come to find Dave, or I bumped into Dave. His expression had completely changed. He was very somber, solemn, and serious. He tells me, Calvin, I've given my life to Jesus. You need to give your life to Jesus. In that rave where techno rave and jungle music is pounding, people high on ecstasy everywhere, and while Dave was under the influence of ecstasy, the Holy Spirit had spoken to Dave and brought to him full conviction. He was so tired of living with one foot in the church and one foot in the world. He was tired of that empty and void feeling that nothing could fill. And in that place of darkness, a rave is nothing but a house of demons. The Holy Spirit convicted him and he realized, what am I doing? That night was a defining moment in Dave's life. He was tired of having one foot in the world and one foot in the church. He pleaded with me that night to give my life to Jesus. And I knew he was right. But I had fallen so far away. I was in so much darkness. Not too long after this, I surrendered my life to Jesus. I meant the rave purely for fun and for pleasure, but a rave is really a warehouse of demons. But we serve a God that can take curses and turn them into blessings. Dave went home and he was sold out for living for Jesus. He took a leave from his job for one year and went to serve as a missionary in the Micronesian Islands. When he came back, he felt that God had, call, had not called him to spend his life prosecuting people, putting people in prison, a life void of hope. Dave quit his job and went to AFCO. Afterwards, they offered him an opportunity to become an evangelist. He worked for Amazing Facts for 10 years as one of their evangelists. Just a few years ago, he settled down and is now pastoring the Fallbrook Seventh-day Adventist Church north of San Diego. After my conversion, the void and emptiness in my heart that nothing could fill was finally filled. I was filled with joy and happiness, and I was on fire spiritually. Because of the life in darkness that I had lived before, I could see the stark contrast between light and darkness. Things that others may take for granted. Walking in the fields, to be able to walk in the woods with my daughters, holding their hands, and feel total peace, to lay my head down and fall asleep peacefully. How sweet it is. You want to be happy for one week? Go on an exotic vacation. You want to be happy for two weeks? Go buy a new car. You want to be happy for one month? Go buy a new house. But if you want to be truly happy, it can only be found in Jesus. The pen of inspiration tells us, without a connection with God, no one can possibly be happy. The pen of inspiration tells us that the happiest place on earth is right where God would have you to be. The happiest place on earth for me right now is right here because this is where God has called me to be right now. In 2009 at GYC in San Jose, Pastor Ivor Myers had shared an idea of his to start a Bible conference where we teach people how to study their Bibles. And I had the opportunity to invite my best friend Dave to come and be a part of this ministry and to serve as the president. 
This was eight years since the rave incident. In the Bible, the number eight represents restoration or new beginnings. God blessed our time together as we got to work together, sharing with others a tool for biblical revival. When I look back, I'm constantly in awe of God's goodness. He not only was merciful and long-suffering to me, but he allows me to be a co-laborer with him in the most important work of saving souls. After serving as director for Army for six years, I stepped down and served as a director of F5 Challenge for the next five years. After five years, I stepped down last, about a year, over a year ago, as I believed it was time for new leadership. And last summer, I was asked to head up the evangelism team for ASI. I share this to underscore that if God can save me, he can save anybody. And if God can use me, he can use anybody. For any parent who may have a wayward child, continue to pray for your children. Continue to pray, because I had parents who were praying for me, a twin brother who was praying for me. I want to mention this caveat for young persons. I had one of my youth ask me during Sab school class if we need to have a conversion experience like this in order to have a strong relationship with God. I want to caution the youth, as I mentioned earlier. You play, you pay. You don't play with fire without getting burned. And while you experience healing, you will always have scars. Revelation 3.21 tells us that we have to overcome. I have had to overcome many things that many of you will never have to overcome. And I'm very candid with my daughters. Life has enough challenges as it, on its own. You don't need to compound your life with additional struggles, obstacles, and addictions to overcome. If God would grant me just one wish, my only wish would be that I could turn back life. I'd live my life all over again. I would live it so differently. I cannot do my life over, but I'm so thankful that I can redeem the time. Caveat for the older people. We are always cautioning the youth, but King Solomon's life should serve as a humble reminder that we are never immune from falling into sin in the later stages of life. As a young man, his life was a life of promise. His father, who had experienced great failure, lost his firstborn with Bathsheba as a result of sin. Can you think of someone else who lost their firstborn as a result of sin? David understood the painful consequences of sin and cautioned his son because David knew that it is only by obedience to God's ways, statutes, and commands that God's blessings can be had. And while in his youth he was steadfast and faithful, it was not in his youth but in his mature years that he imperceptibly fell prey to sin. We have seen this happen in our church. Many influential leaders in our church have fallen. And it is the same common denominator that led to King Solomon's demise lust of the flesh. There is a Korean proverb that goes like this. When you gallivant and engage in foolishness at a later, later age, it is much more dangerous because the stakes are higher. There's much more at risk. Just three weekends, uh, a number of, of months ago, I was there at GYC and I saw a number of you guys at GYC. And someone told me that they had heard my testimony. And the gentleman asked me, what I do to stay on the right track or keep from falling? I'm going to give you the key to success. It's inspired counsel. Acts of the Apostle tells us, strength to resist evil is best gained by aggressive service. What did we learn last night? What is service? It's love in action.
Are you struggling to overcome sins in your life? Get engaged in active service for God. I'm giving Bible studies to a man. He's about 29 years old, and he's addicted to pornography, and he spends all his money in brothels. But there's hope for him because he's sick and tired of his life. He's at rope's end. He's so tired. He's suicidal. He wants to throw it all away, but he keeps falling to sin. And I told him, your only solution, we need to get you out. You can't leave a heroin addict right there in downtown Seattle. You need to take him out, and he's willing. And so we're looking for ways to get him out so he can be somewhere in a good environment, surrounded by good people. But there's hope for him because he wants out. The hardest is when you're dealing with people who don't, who don't see the mess that they're living in, and they're comfortable. As I look back on my journey, it's been 20 years, and every year of my life is better than the year before. I tell people it is because I'm making good choices. Choices are up to you and I. I've made enough bad choices to last me a lifetime. I paid heavily for my bad choices. I rarely make bad choices anymore. It is no longer I did it my way. I only want to do it his way. King Solomon came to the same conclusion. The book of Ecclesiastes is really an essay on apologetics, but not in the traditional sense of does God exist? No, he knows God exists. It's more about whether God matters or not. He begins Ecclesiastes by stating that all is vanity. What he says is nothing matters. And he states this course throughout Ecclesiastes that nothing matters, nothing matters. And at the end of Ecclesiastes, he does a complete U-turn. And what does he say? He concludes that everything does matter. How does he underscore this? He says, for God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. His conclusion is that God matters. And this is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. King Solomon attests to the advantages of a loving and generous God versus a life without God by pointing to the senselessness, pointlessness, and hopelessness of the alternative. Folks, what is the alternative? In my own life, by not only faith and reason, but from personal experience, I can attest to the superiority of the Christian life. Over life, um, over life without Jesus, there is no comparison in God's promises, are sure. For years, I lived an aimless, purposeless life focused on pleasure. I now know my firm purpose in life. My nights used to be filled with dancing the night away. Now my evenings are spent giving Bible studies, showing others how they can have the abundant life that only Jesus can give. Currently, right now, I have somewhere between 20 and 25 people that I'm giving Bible studies to. And... Um, this last year has been the best year of my life as God gives me more and more opportunities to share of his goodness and his love. Because of my experiences, my perspective on sin has changed. When I was living in the world, sin was fun for me. Sin was euphoric. Now I see things differently. I don't like sin. Sin causes pain. God doesn't hate sin because he's an exacting judge who likes to keep score who is arbitrary and he's a jerk. God hates sin because sin causes pain, separation, and death. God hates sin because you and I are the supreme objects of his love and affection. And God hates seeing how sin hurts you and I. Any parent can understand this. Ask a mother whose four-year-old son is dying of cancer. Ask her how she feels about cancer as her little boy is throwing up. After his fourth chemotherapy session and with tears rolling down his eyes, he says, no more, mommy, no more. It hurts too much. Please make it go away, mommy. Ask 
And for the mother, the chemotherapy is her only hope for not losing her son. Ask this mother how she feels about cancer. This is how God feels about sin. That little boy's pain, the mother's pain, is breaking the heart of God. And Satan is hell-bent on getting us to sin. It's the best way to get back at God, to hurt his children. The pen of inspiration tells us that in order to save us from sin, God took for us the risk of failure and eternal loss. Do you know what this means? That if things didn't go just right, all of heaven could have been imperiled. All of heaven could have been lost. God was willing to risk all in order to bring us back home. Listen to this quote carefully. God would not permit it to be said that he could have done more or reveal to humanity a greater measure of love and the gift of Christ he gave all heaven. We're not going to get to heaven and Jesus is going to say, you know what, if I had done just a little bit more for your child, he could have been here. He is doing anything and everything to save us into his kingdom. You and I will never be able to fully comprehend or understand the magnitude of the sacrifice that Jesus made to redeem us until we are in heaven. Ellen White tells us that we cannot recognize. It's beyond computation. And I'm going to tell you one reason why we cannot comprehend this. We know where Jesus came. We know where Jesus came to. Because we have a frame of reference. We live here on this earth. We know where he came to. But there's something we don't know. We don't know where he came from. You and I cannot comprehend this until we are there. What is the interspace or the chasm that Jesus crossed to come to save us? Now, I miss sharing these pictures, I'm sorry. So I got to connect Dave with an old friend of mine who had been converted, and then he got to marry Nina, and that's his wife now. This is Dave and I doing ministry. There is a verse in the Bible that gives us a little bit perhaps of a hint of this chasm that God crossed. It says in Isaiah, it is he, God, that sitteth upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers. Now, let's just substitute cockroaches for the sake of this illustration instead of grasshoppers. Would you be willing to be a cockroach for 30 years to go save the cockroach race from extinction? You're going to live in dark and dungy pantries. Pantries, damp, smelly. Cockroaches running around everywhere. And you know what? They don't like you. They spit on you. They mock you. They want to kill you. And eventually, after 30 years living with these cockroaches, they crucify you. And I'm just trying to see if we can wrap our mind. And I don't even think that this illustration does any justice. But we will not know. And that's why you and I, we don't recognize the value of a soul. But we are told that if it was just for even one person, Christ would have died. If it was just for Eve and Adam did not sin, Jesus would have died. I want you to recognize the value of a soul. It's what heaven values most. It's the currency of heaven. Final sin fact number seven. Sin cannot be explained. Sin is elusive, it works imperceptibly, and it is uncountable. 
The pen of inspiration tells us the entrance of sin into heaven cannot be explained. If it were explainable, it would show that there was some reason for sin, but as there was not the least excuse for it, its origin will ever remain shrouded in mystery. In another place, she said, sin is a mysterious, unexplainable thing. There was no reason for its existence. To seek to explain it is to seek to give a reason for it, and that would be to justify it. Sin appeared in a perfect universe, a thing that was shown to be inexcusable. What she is saying is that you cannot explain evil because to do it, to give an explanation or a reason for its existence would be to justify it. For example, why was that woman abused by her husband? To give a reason for it would be to give an excuse for it, to try and justify it. And there is no reason whatsoever for any woman or child to ever be abused by anybody. For this reason, sin, because sin cannot be explained, there are many things that we cannot understand or give a reason for. People are hurt, and they get angry and upset at God and point fingers at God because they cannot understand why something happened the way that it did. Just recently, I'm sure most of you are all aware of what happened in the Philippines with Daniel, Louis, and Janelle, and I knew Daniel. The last time I saw Daniel was at National ASI, and he was there serving because that's what Daniel does. And I'm sure many people are asking, like, why is this happening? The Bible tells us that the laborers are few and the harvest is plentiful. And here you got this one guy who's a helicopter pilot over there. How many nurses are willing to go spend their life in the Philippines? Why? I don't know. I don't have answers. But I do know that when there was a martyr and a martyr died for Jesus, it would spawn more people to step into the ranks and more people would swell in to go finish the work. I know because of Daniel, I'm inspired. That it makes me recognize and think about what am I doing? Am I really doing everything that I can while I still have time? And so while there are many things that we don't understand and we don't have questions for, there are things that we just cannot understand. Let me give you an example. My friend, he's a truck driver. His two-year-old had an abscess on her front teeth. We needed to extract that tooth. I numbed, up, I numbed her up. She was not feeling the pain. But when I came at her with forceps, she started screaming. He had to hold her down really tight. I grabbed that tooth as fast as I could, and within a second or two, we pulled the tooth out. As soon as we pulled it out, she stopped crying. She's two years old. Can she understand why we're needing to take out that tooth so it doesn't become septic and she doesn't have an abscess? She can't understand this. Does her father, who's a truck driver, who's older and bigger, does he understand why? Of course he understands. In the same way, there are certain things that you and I cannot comprehend. But the question is, are we willing to trust him anyways? While there are so many things I don't have answers for, here are things that I do know for certain. God gave all to save us from sin. God was willing to risk all to save us from sin. And through this whole ordeal, who would suffer the most? It would be God who would suffer the most. You and I only suffer for our own lives. As God is omniscient and omnipresent, he would suffer for every single pain that has ever existed since the inception of sin. And as I've lived a life void of God's presence in my life and a life of choosing to follow God, I can attest to the joy, peace, and happiness that can be had only in living in Him. So even though I don't have all the answers, and I often come face to face with difficult and challenging questions that have no good answers, 
The question is, am I willing to trust him anyways? And I want to trust him, and I do choose to trust him. Are you willing to trust him? 1 Corinthians 4, 5 says, Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts, and then shall every man have praise of God. God gives us a promise that while we don't understand everything, there will come a time when he will help us to understand. And when we do, it will culminate in us praising him. Isn't that a beautiful, beautiful promise? As we come to an end, I share one last story. Myrna Opshaw was a 42-year-old wife of an ER doctor at the Carmichael Seventh Avenue Church in Sacramento, where I grew up, where she taught Sabbath school for the youth. She was at the Crocker National Bank on Monday, April 21, 1975, depositing the tithes and offering for the church when she was killed by a shotgun blast as the bank was being robbed. When Myrna was brought to the hospital, her husband happened to be the ER physician who was on duty that day. Her husband came to Sacramento Avenue Academy that day where their kids were attending school. That's the school I attended for 11 years of my life. The kids at school hadn't eaten. They were numb and in pain. They had just lost their beloved mother. They had their sack lunches. Dad said, you have to eat. He said, let's pray. As he prayed, when he got to the part of the prayer, when he said, please bless the hands that prepared it, they all lost it. As they broke down in tears. Why did this sweet mother, wife, and Sabbath school teacher who was faithfully doing work for the Lord, depositing the tithes and offerings for the church, have to die a senseless death by a shotgun blast, leaving behind a grieving husband and heartbroken children? I don't know. We don't have answers for situations like this. But I will tell you what I do know. I have a friend named Carissa Vitorovic. Chris's mother, Diane Rose, was a youth member of the church at that time. She was in Myrna's Sabbath school class that Sabbath morning just two days before Myrna got killed on Monday. And she recalls the very last thing that Mary said to her in her class just before Sabbath school class had ended. She looked at each one of them and said by name to each student in her class, Rose, I want to see you in heaven. Not knowing that that would be the last time she would see that girl. John, I want to see you in heaven. Janet, I want to see you in heaven. She said this to every single student in her class. While we don't understand why this amazing mother's life was cut short, I take comfort in knowing that up to Myrna's final moments, she was faithfully going about her duty serving the Lord. And I believe that Mary will be in heaven one day soon in a place that will never know pain or sorrow ever again. I take comfort in knowing that our God who gave all Ristol and suffered through this with the family can be trusted fully. And recently someone sent me a picture of Pastor Rodney Bowles, who was the VP of evangelism be before he stepped down. And so I'm in taking his position. And in this picture, there was another man standing next to him doing mission work in Pakistan or something like this. And the name was Dr. John Opsal. So I sent this picture to my friend Carissa and I said, is this Myrna's son? And she goes, it is Myrna's son. 
So I'm sure if Myrna was here today, she'd be so proud that her son is engaged in mission service. In these kinds of difficult and painful and perplexing situations, because they're all around us today, we have two choices. We can question God, come up with a myriad of reasons to doubt and distrust him, or we can choose to trust him regardless. I have personally tasted and seen for myself that God is love, God is just, God has our best interests in mind, and I choose to serve him. It is my prayer that by God's grace, all of us would live life like Myrna did until the final moment that our probation closes, that we would be faithfully going about our duties in serving him. Kenny, I want to see you in heaven. Justin, I want to see you in heaven. Pastor Skip, I want to see you in heaven. Mindy, I want to see you in heaven. And for every single person that is here, I want to see you in heaven. Listen carefully to the words of this song. As I shared earlier, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity we have to give it all, give everything we have, and to live our lives for Jesus. And so just listen to the words of this song before I come back for a final appeal.
church a gentleman my age came up to me and he shared with me I've never ever brought anyone to Jesus a few months later he shared with me a dream that he had I want to share with you this dream he shares in his dream he was standing in judgment hall at the end of time he did not look up but he knew he was standing in front of Jesus Jesus said to him, you've had great opportunities to learn about the Bible. You had the opportunity to go to school from first grade all the way to university and Adventist schools. So I really want to return on my investment. My friend said when he heard that, he hung his head in shame because he had not knowing that he had not brought anyone to Jesus. He said, my heart was thumping and the only verse that would come to mind was the verse about they will be thrown out into darkness and there will be gnashed, weeping and gnashing of teeth. And he said he was scared. I told my friend, you know that God loves you. I believe that if, if this God has sent him this dream, that it's because that there is still time left to give God a return on his investment. I don't do what I do because I'm trying to earn my way into heaven. I do what I do because I owe it to Jesus because what he's done for me. I have two appeals. One appeal is for those of you, maybe like myself, maybe there was a time in your life, maybe there's wasted time, so much time, so many things that you could have done that you haven't done for the Lord. There is good news. We still have time. You can redeem the time right now. And my second appeal is for the young people. I'm so envious of the young people. You have your whole life ahead of you. And I, I'm inspired by the young people. I wish I was doing what the young leadership team is doing now. But I'm so thankful that even I got a late start that God was still merciful. And God is a God of second chances. And I want to challenge the young people. You know, just a, a couple days ago, I was online and do you know what I was looking up? I was looking up, what does it take to become a helicopter pilot? <laughs> And I want to challenge the young people that you would pray to God and ask God, where would he have you to be? Because the happiest place on earth is right where he would have you to be. And that's where you want to be. And so, I want to ask you, invite you all, if you want to take up this challenge, to ask God where he would have you to be, if you would stand up and we will pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, I want to thank you because you're so merciful and so long-suffering. I want to thank you, Lord, that you are willing that heaven could be imperiled, but that for us, you are willing to take this risk to come and save us. Dear Heavenly Father, help us to be faithful because we owe it to you. I pray for each and every single person under the sound of my voice 
that you would draw near to them in a special way. I pray that they would be asking you that you would reveal to them your plans that you have for them and that we would redeem the time. I pray that we'd be faithful and that we can go and go light your world. All this we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.